This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast, where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. You're joined by me, Sam. Uh, and today we have the huge pleasure of being joined by uh, Emotive Partners industry partner, Blythe Masters. Welcome, Blythe. Thank you, Sam. Nice to be here. Typically, we would do this in person and, and typically it probably would have been in New York. Now, obviously, with the situation we're in, I'm in London. I believe you're in Florida. Is that correct? Yes. Wellington, Florida, near Palm Beach. Beautiful. I know where I would rather be. And uh, we're going to cover a whole load of different things today. We're going to talk about your career. We're going to talk about the space that we operate in. We're going to talk about the times we find ourselves in. And perhaps we can even touch upon some of the opportunities that are going to come out the other side of this, that both Motive Partners and a number of other businesses will be ready to, to both capitalize and support as the need for value creation becomes even more acute. But let's start right at the very beginning. Like everyone listening will know you by reputation. You've had an incredible career and actually an incredibly diverse career as well. But perhaps you could tell us a little bit about from JP Morgan to Motive Partners and, and everything in between. I'll do that and try to keep it manageably short. Otherwise, this could consume the whole podcast. <laughs> I started working for JP Morgan in the late 1980s when I was still a teenager, actually. I first worked for them during a gap year between school and university. And once I graduated after university in 91, I joined the bank full time permanently and continued on from then until 2014 or thereabouts. So, a total of about 27 years spent working at what became over that time, obviously one of the great behemoths of the global financial services business. And I did a lot of different things whilst I was at JP Morgan, most of them in and around the markets businesses, primarily on the FICC, fixed income currency commodities side of things. I ran a, a variety of big global markets businesses, including credit activities, and most recently the global commodities business, which I built for the bank from around 2007 until we sold it in 2014. And I also did a number of roles in the command and control and risk functions. So I was head of credit portfolio and credit policy, which are the functions that look after the retained credit exposures of the bank. And I was the CFO of the Global Investment Bank. And I headed regulatory affairs for the investment bank in the post-global financial crisis era. So from 2009-10 onwards, during the period of, of re-regulation of the banking industry. When I left JP Morgan in 2014, I found I had a more innovative entrepreneurial itch to scratch, as it were. And I went from really one extreme to the other to a complete blank sheet of paper startup organization, which became the company now known as Digital Asset which was a very early mover in the blockchain space, or more specifically, distributed ledger technology aimed towards enterprise financial services initially, although the company is a little broader than that nowadays. And that was an extraordinary experience of helping to create a company from scratch and take it through a Series A and Series B financings. 
and to land the first major global enterprise contract for a blockchain company really anywhere in the world, which was the work that continues between the Australian Securities Exchange, ASX, and digital asset to replace their entire post-trade infrastructure for global for Australian cash equities with uh, distributed ledger technology. And that project is still very much in flight, uh, a tiny bit delayed, not for reasons of the technology, but as with so many things, because of the impact of the pandemic on markets. But nonetheless, Digital Asset is the creator of the functional programming language known as DAML, Digital Asset Modeling Language, which is fast becoming the most pervasive language used for creating smart contracts in blockchain technology. Left Digital Asset at the end of 2018, took a bit of time off, and I'm now pursuing more of a portfolio of different activities. But that led me to Motive. And I joined Motive as an industry partner at the end of last year, 2019, because I was particularly attracted to the business model of the organization. First, of course, the focus on financial technology, which is an area of a great passion of mine, but also the fact that Motive focuses extensively and specializes in having a deep bench of operating and entrepreneurial experience amongst its members. So rather than simply being experts in financial engineering and corporate restructuring, this is a firm which has great depth of experience in actually operating, growing, building, changing, innovating within both startup organizations and those that have gone on to become uh, multi-billion or even tens of billions of dollars in enterprise value. And to me, that was extremely appealing and quite differentiated. And combined with that, the focus on innovation in Motive Labs, which I think is a very powerful tool. So I'm still a relative newcomer to Motive, but it's been a very fast and furious first few months and quite fascinating, obviously, given what's going on in markets. Yeah, having heard your slightly more detailed background just then than what I've read historically, we couldn't have found a better match to join Motive as an industry partner. You've had the traditional background as well as the entrepreneurial one, which is, as you say, exactly what Motive Partners tries to bridge the operating background with the entrepreneurial and innovation mindset. But you're right, you have joined it quite quite a time. And it's a time where there really is no operating playbook. Every firm across the planet is having to figure this out as they go. And I guess in many respects, you probably see some similarities to what you experienced when you were head of regulatory affairs in 09-10. How do you think financial services is going to cope with the great lockdown as it's been labeled by the IMF? And do you think in the same way that banks were the bad guys in 2008 and the regulator had to take a very proactive approach to fix some of the things that went wrong, who do you think are going to be labeled similarly for this pandemic? And obviously not blaming them on the pandemic, but it looks a lot like the insurance industry is copying a fair amount of scrutiny at the moment. Yes, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a big topic. You know, I'll, I'll try and sort of carve it up into sort of separate pieces. There's the impact on business as usual or business, you know, as modified perhaps for financial firms both fintech and straight financial services. Then there's the impact on going forward, the operating environment in which those firms exist and strive to compete. And then there's obviously the lessons from the point of view of what's actually happened in the markets and what's needed to be done and what the implications of that for regulatory reform and potential interventions or, or changes of the rules of the road. From the point of view of finding blame, it's not quite the same activity that was obviously the case after 2008. I don't think anyone, at least in the financial services, feels that 
what has happened in the past few months started here. It may well end up as a credit crisis with a big nexus in financial markets, but it certainly didn't start here. It wasn't triggered by excess leverage or insufficient capitalization, as was very much you know, part of the story in 2008. So maybe I'll sort of start on the subject of, sort of business as usual or business as modified. And I'll draw here from some of the work that I do, both working with Santander, where I sit on a number of boards for that entity, including their pure play digital banking platform, Open Bank, and other similar services within the group. And it's very clear from what we're seeing there that, you know, more or less in the past couple of months, we've probably experienced two decades of evolution that might perhaps have occurred at a normal pace from the point of view of a shift by the consumer away from traditional banking behaviors to a much more digital intensive life. So obviously in-person behavior, you know, more or less closed down, which meant that branch visits evaporated. You also have seen this move away from the use of paper money because of concerns about exposure caused by actually physically interacting with paper money towards the use of cards and other non-card payment vehicles that are digital in nature. And you've seen a massive substitution of e-commerce for in-person purchasing behavior. And of course, you've seen the need for payment holidays and forbearance on various credit facilities. And you've seen big government subsidies to income directly and indirectly, some cases having income maintained, in other cases having unemployment benefits provided. And that's leading to a great unknown in terms of what the default experience will actually pan out to be in these portfolios as that government and or federal support is withdrawn gradually or otherwise. And so it's very clear that those organizations that already had a digital agenda, that already had a digital relationship with those customers have seen that actually strengthened those that have been underinvested in that space are scrambling to catch up. And really, it's, I think, obvious that in order to best understand the behavior of the consumer going forward, it's going to be necessary to have that digital relationship. And that's going to be relevant, not just for satisfying customer appetite and experience, but also for really understanding their credit evolution and their repayment behavior in these uncertain times. On the non-bank front, there are a number of challenges for smaller challenger startups, both the fintech and some of the pure play digital banking organizations. You know, these have continued to see gigantic growth in terms of their interaction with customers in a digital context expanding. But many of them are obviously starved for capital and have potential liquidity issues. And indeed, many of them still continue to demonstrate the kind of profitability that is ultimately going to be needed to prove out these business models. In order really to be very successful from a profitability point of view, it's necessary to be able to monetize data and relationships, to be able to cross-sell and deliver multiple products. And many of the pure play digital startups lack the ability to deliver that. They just don't have the depth of product offering. And although the cost of customer acquisition has come down in this environment, it's still hard to really monetize the value of a customer. And so I think you can expect to see some considerable consolidation. Note in point that Santander quietly closed its majority stake acquisition in a fintech in the UK called Ebury, which focuses on the international SBE, so a small business enterprise space. So transaction banking platform really in cross-border and international activities, so particular focus in Latin America and Asia. 
And I think that kind of development, I think, will become more and more prevalent as you see banks and potential bank competitors joining forces and consolidating in order to deliver a, a more fulsome digital capability for those banks. On the investment banking and commercial banking side, you know, obviously a lot of focus has needed to be on just changing the way that our firms operate, you know, with large numbers of employees working from home. There have been considerable challenges from an operational point of view. I think it's very clear that the noise around the performance of offshored hubs has been a real challenge. So the difficulties of communication in those circumstances where you see a sudden uptick in activity, but non-availability of personnel due to restrictions on travel, on lockdown, you know, has led to some real challenges. And so there's been a lot of focus on just reorienting business practices towards interacting in very different ways. And I think that there will be some focus on ensuring now the resiliency and the security and this dependability of offshored arrangements and outsourced arrangement, not just their cost and efficacy. So I would expect to see some change there. There's also been a lot of noise around CBDCs, central bank, digital currencies and stable coins. I think this is an idea for whom finally the time has actually come. Obviously, the move by China to introduce its own CBDC and the advent of Facebook via Libra to that space has galvanized many. And there are a number of organizations that are well capitalized and, and reasonably well experienced from a technology deployment point of view that are seeking to disrupt the traditional payment channels, both B2B, B2C and C2C, actually, where those channels you know, used to have to involve credit cards or bank accounts or the wire services, ACH and other bank-administered payment platforms. A number of insurgents are seeking to bypass those channels and radically reduce the cost of a transaction in the payment space. And I think that's begun to accelerate through the back end of this period as generally the move towards digital payments and non-in-person payments has expanded. So big, big changes in business as usual. From the point of view of you know going forward, the overall macro environment obviously is more or less unambiguously just gotten worse for financial firms. The existing pressures that have already been well documented impacting both the buy side and the sell side, I think are just now more in place and more prevalent. So revenues impacted negatively by the fact that we are in a now a, a low, a very low and or negative rate environment, which looks set to continue mm -hmm. for even longer. Fee models on the buy side that were based on net asset values that have declined and you know continued move and shift towards passive and index-based investment strategies away from actively managed ones, high and rising cost pressures from compliance and regulatory requirements, and the need to invest continuously in technology in order to stay relevant, both from the point of view of customer experience and from the point of view of compliance and, and data management. High and rising capital requirements, you know, there's been some alleviation of that by diktat from regulators, but by and large, you know, that's come along with a guidance to cease share buybacks and to stop paying dividends in certain jurisdictions. So still a lot of pressure to continue to, to keep capital levels, you know, at the highest possible levels. And there's going to be a period of, you know, significant impairment to balance sheets. You know, that's not yet really played out, but the double whammy of the hit to the consumer through you know, unprecedented global unemployment rates and the disruption in the energy sector as a result of the supply side shock there is unquestionably going to have a huge amount of impact on financial institution balance sheets. And that, by the way, is where you're seeing the real pressure on, in particular, the insurance sector 
where essentially the combination of low slash negative rates and potential losses and certainly downgrades on longer dated assets is creating a real challenge for insurance balance sheets for an asset liability match point of view. Um, That's why you've seen the insurance sector underperform the broad indices so significantly. And then turning to work I do with Brookings, I sit on a task force which is focusing on financial stability, whose work actually started six or nine months before the crisis. It's been absolutely fascinating to see how some of the things that we identified in advance actually did come to play during this experience and then other things, you know, which we hadn't thought about. But these obviously include a number of fault lines in the global capital markets that became, you know, very readily apparent. So the extraordinary pressures created by mass liquidation of almost every form of asset in favor, including and especially U.S. Treasury securities, ostensibly the deepest, most liquid financial market in the world, which suffered periods of dramatic instability, lack of depth, widening of bid offer spreads, as everyone around the globe fled to raise U.S. dollars in cash. So that fragility in the U.S. Treasury market has been very much highlighted and to a similar extent, the U.S. Treasury repo market. Yet again, we've seen intervention necessary in money market funds, you know, despite the reforms that were put in place after 2008, still had to be done again. It's very clear that the introductions of gates in these funds just in certain environments act as as red warning flags. And, you know, once one fund gates or threatens to gate, there's the expectations that others will follow that leads to a run on funds. So that mechanism really hasn't worked to avoid runs on funds. We also saw a significant divergence between the net asset value of mutual funds and their actual pricing as a result of mismatches in the liquidity profile of the assets they invest in versus the asset versus the liquidity that they themselves offer to their investors. So significant problems there. Non-bank mortgage services. So as you know, in the Mm -hmm. US in particular, the uh, non-bank mortgage sector essentially became dominant after the global financial crisis. The banking sector stepped back and 80 or so percent of 70 to 80 percent of new mortgage origination in the United States is done by non-banks today. But these are very thinly capitalized organizations entirely dependent on capital markets for their liquidity and on the government agencies. And, you know, they too were in line for bailouts when the mortgage markets essentially completely stopped functioning both the agency and non-agency markets until the Fed stepped in. And then finally, you've got this issue of climate change and stranded assets in the energy sector, where as governments start spending their way out of this to avoid depression, significant pressure to do that in a Green New Deal way, particularly coming from Europe which will only serve to increase the potential starvation of capital to carbon-intensive industries, which could potentially lead to uh, a real uh, challenge from a point of view of uh, bank and insurance company balance sheet stability. And then, you know, the very last thing there is, you know, there's the question of moral hazard. You know, yet again, you know, a put has been written under the value of financial assets. And, you know, that's only going to serve to potentially incentivize risky activities that are undertaken on the assumption that this will happen again. The central banks of the world will underwrite the risk. And that creates a real cause for concern amongst regulators and policymakers. So you can certainly expect that there will be a wave of regulation aimed at a number of the things that I have just articulated in the months and years to come as the lessons are learned from this financial crisis. And again, you're right, the focus will not be particularly on banks. It will be on markets, market instruments, market structure, and non-bank actors in, in the months to come. A lot of, wow. <laughs> a lot, there's a lot going on. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, you ask a big question, you get a big answer. Yeah, sorry um, about that. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, it's, uh, that's exactly what our, our listeners want to hear. Have you heard of Brain Food? It's our weekly newsletter and it comes out every Sunday morning. It's packed with the best content that we come across on financial services and technology. It contains quotes, articles, events, and it showcases rising fintechs and people in our industry that inspire us. You can subscribe at motivepartners.com. Let's talk about something you touched on very briefly just at the end there, and it's, it's an area that I'm spending a good amount of time on at Dun & Bradstreet, in fact, which is sustainable finance. And, and a move, a shift to thinking really about long-term value as governments are getting more and more involved and will have to on an ongoing basis in the performance of business. How do you see sustainable finance becoming a more important fabric of our lives? And do you think that we'll see governments mandating assessments and monitoring of adherence to certain standards? What's your view in that space? Well, until COVID happened, my view on that was that there was an ongoing surprise in the, the last six months prior to COVID and, you know, perhaps manifested or illustrated by the, the mood and the tone at Davos, which seems like a million years ago, but it was just the beginning of this year, right before the virus really bared its fangs. And that surprise was that everybody had, had expected at some point, you know, we might face uh, carbon taxation imposed by governments. Obviously, there'd been various experiments in that regard around the world already, but notable absences of it in the, in the US, for example, and, and many other places. And, you know, there was always the thought that at some point, you know, that would change and there would be big implications. But it felt like it was a ways off, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective. And I think the surprise that was ongoing pre-COVID was that actually different stakeholders were proving to be much more effective than government and regulation, per se. And those stakeholders were basically in individual investors and their representatives at the institutional level, as well as employees. And you were beginning to find that that shareholder activism initially from explicitly you know, sustainably oriented investors who'd seen extraordinary growth and popularity in their products, but now increasingly from just the big players who represent a large number of individual investors through the mutual funds and money management sector, really begin to flex their muscle in terms of their interaction with the companies that they invest in. And similarly, you know, employers were beginning to find it really hard to attract and retain the best talent particularly in industries that had, you know, activities that were not felt by the younger generation to be sustainable or admirable. And so these two avenues, I think, were beginning to make themselves felt, you know, just the fact that a teenager, you know, addresses the UN on the subject and, and addresses Davos on the subject and gets into it with the president of the United States was very symbolic of that change and that shift in mood. And many people didn't realize that there would actually be an avenue for that sentiment to be expressed so clearly by shareholder activism. And now with COVID, I think is the second leg of the pincer movement, which is that you're quite right that as government is getting much more involved in corporate activity by necessity, they are going to start picking winners and losers. They're going to start imposing rules. They're going to start imposing transparency and sustainability goals. And you know that'll be the price of government support. Not every industry, not every firm within every industry will enjoy that support. So there's considerable suasion at play there. And in the US, obviously, it will depend very much on the outcome of the election this year both presidential and in terms of the majorities in Congress. 
but you're already seeing it in Europe, for example, in the very explicit addressing of you know Green New Deal criteria in the fiscal stimulus package that the ECB mm. and Europe has just put forward. And you know, obviously, this is still draft, but it's in the first salvo and loud and clear and front and center. So I think that between those two things, we now have almost irresistible momentum towards a shift in favor of more sustainable growth as we position ourselves to grow out of what is definitely a recession and hopefully avoid a global depression environment. All those points I totally agree with. I think that top-down force of asset managers in the investment community wanting to understand more about their investments because of regulatory requirements was really the beginning. We're going to see the, the bottom up you know, here's your £50,000 interest-free loan, but by the way, you've got to adhere to a whole load of new standards from the government. And then you've got that horizontal flex as well across supply chains. You know, obviously, organizations wanting to know far more about the sustainability, the quality of their suppliers and the standards they hold themselves to. I think this is going to be a really exciting space, and it's going to be a space that permeates every industry, which really shows the, the scale of it. Last year, or maybe the year before 2018, the sustainable finance industry was valued at $21 trillion. So it's definitely a large and growing space. We're going to flip quickly into blockchain and, and DLP. So lots of people don't entirely understand blockchain, and many of them, my mother included, get it mixed up with Bitcoin, which really was the vehicle for bringing cryptocurrencies into the limelight. But blockchain, as you alluded to earlier, is being used across the full financial services sector, from transactions to post-trade settlement services. And it's got a number of really interesting use cases. Could you maybe give our listeners a little peek into where you think DLT will go in the future and some of those use cases? And I know you're on the board of Maersk, I believe, which I can imagine is a prime example of where that may be a, a live use case. Absolutely. And... Maybe I'll start with Maersk. You're right, I do sit on the board of AP Muller Maersk. And they are the largest global container shipping and logistics company in the world. And by the way, if you thought that the digital transformation in financial services was somewhat lagging behind our hopes and expectations and is difficult, digital transformation in supply chain and global shipping is a lot more difficult and further lagged behind. So this is an industry which has you know, obviously traditionally been very much about the physical apparatus. But especially in this environment, focus on supply chains has had to change dramatically. The huge disruptions in supply chains that started off with the shutdown in China and obviously echoed around the world really opened the eyes of global industry and governments to issues associated with now needing to, first of all, understanding that you have a supply chain, you know, for many of us on the street, you know, feeling the impact of lack of availability of PPE or the shortages on the supermarket shelves, you know, realizing, you know, what supply chains are all about really became a new learning as part of this experience. But for large global enterprise, you know, supply chain management has always been about focus on speed and cost. And those were the variables that you optimize for really, you know, prioritize over almost everything else. But this experience has obviously changed that. And there's going to be a lot more focus on dependability, resilience, security, and redundancy in supply chains going forward than just speed and cost. And really to achieve all of that in anything approaching a, a manageable and efficient way, you need to have 
a process that doesn't involve fleets of motorcycles and couriers and delays and seeking down specific individuals in government or officialdom and finding them personally and you know doing all the stuff just to get goods onto a container and shipped across the world that kind of massive paper chain and inefficiency you know really has to disappear and you need to digitize all of that And so a great use case for blockchain has been the global supply chain space, both trade processing and then related to that, trade finance. So that's the the financing of activities related to trade, the trade in in goods and physical goods. So Maersk has a project which involves not just them, but many of their global competitors. They're in a partnership on the technology side with IBM. And the idea is to essentially set up a blockchain-based capability that allows the interaction of multiple independent actors who play different roles in the execution of supply chains, the buyers, the sellers, the logistics, the freight forwarders, the insurers, there's there's so many actors in this space, allows them to essentially act upon a shared common digital record of the necessary facts associated with the goods and transactions that are taking place that avoids the need for paper-based processing, but delivers the kind of security and protection against fraud, which is, of course, rampant in this space, that can only be delivered by a shared database that is immutable, means it can't be edited at random without the impacted parties authenticating and authorizing that, and that is secure and offers privacy so that those elements of a transaction that are non-public and are proprietary can be shared with only those that have a need and right to know about it and nobody else. And these essentially, at a very basic level, are the core capabilities of distributed ledger technology or blockchain, where note that I haven't mentioned the concept of a token or a coin once Mm. at all in this particular use case. I think it's a terrific use case, actually, because it meets the core criteria for for success. There's a network. There are multiple independent actors, many of whom are competitors of each other. There's a need for privacy. There's a need for resiliency and for multiple actors to be able to authenticate their activity in a cryptographically secure manner in order to avoid fraud. These are all key ingredients for a successful blockchain application. I mentioned in my earlier comments that I think the time is gradually arriving for the deployment of CBDC, central bank digital currencies and stable coins. Mm-hmm. This is obviously clearly in the payments space, whether that be large interbank payments for settlement of transactions in securities or currencies or derivatives or much smaller remittance flows cross-border or you know, from consumer to consumer or B2C transactions for, you know, call it, you know, internet commerce, for example. There are many alternatives already available for such transactions, but many of them are still expensive, certainly for the individual retail consumer to use. And so essentially, the idea is that a stable coin whose value is linked in a fashion that can be relied upon to that of a fiat currency whether that coin be directly issued by the central bank, as is going to be the case in the relatively near future in China, or via private sector intermediaries, the idea is that once you have a digital coin whose value can be understood you know, with certainty as being linked to the value of the underlying currency in which you wish to transact, and, and as you know, a huge percentage of global payments flows and trade-related flows are conducted in dollars, 
So a dollar stablecoin is a very valuable global instrument. Once you have that linkage known with certainty, then the advantages of digital coins or digital currencies are the efficacy, the speed, the resiliency of an internet-based interaction medium, which is unlike the open internet, you know, backed up with essentially cryptographic secure credentialing and identity management. And that offers the opportunity to transact in avoidance of the ACH rails, the credit card interchange rails, the wire rails. And so this, I think, is potentially deeply threatening to incumbent players. But equally, those incumbents very often have a broad and diverse relationship with their customers. And actually, the value of a customer to those incumbents is often uh, achieved through cross-marketing, cross-selling, and having a multi-product relationship. So a lending relationship, a consumer financing relationship at the point of sale, auto finance, home finance, mortgage finance, student loan financing, investment advice, investment execution, processing of payments too. And if Mm -hmm. you can essentially embrace the use of, of digital rails and offer a better product to your customer, it may well be that you don't lose all of those other avenues of engagement. And so I think you're going to see many banking organizations actually adopt and adapt to the use of stable coins, whether they be CBDCs or privately generated. And I think Mm -hmm. that momentum is potentially quite threatening to the credit card interchange players. But actually, they themselves, too, are looking quite closely at this space and could deploy the technology themselves. But, you know, their own technology functions very highly. It's not that it doesn't function. It's that people are seeking to avoid having to pay for it. And and that's the key there. When anyone hears about this stuff and just hearing you talk about it in a bit of detail, the first thing that people think when they're exposed to new and emerging technologies, or, or at least new to them, is governance. And am I right in thinking, particularly when you're thinking about central banks, the ultimate financial monetary governing bodies, that the transparency and the immutable audit trails of DLT make it perfect for this kind of cross-border governance requirement? Yes. I mean, perfect is in the eye of the beholder, of course, because that same ability to track and intrude can be used for good reasons, to prevent terrorist financing and money laundering, or for bad reasons, to track and contain the behavior of a population. And so mm. people are equally very scared about that. You know, there, there's been a lot written about the, the Chinese context of this, where it, it's very clear that the government's attitude towards individual privacy and individual self-sovereignty is, is very different than in the Western world. But there's no doubt that the technology can be used for use cases such as Bitcoin, which is explicitly intended to facilitate individual to individual peer to peer interaction in a non intermediated context where pseudonymity or initially anonymity was an explicit objective. Obviously, with time and analysis, that has become harder. A lot of focus has been put into ensuring that the vast majority of activity in and around Bitcoin is now done in compliance with various regulatory authorities. But the underlying technology of a purely public cryptocurrency does allow for the potential of anonymous or near-anonymous activity. And in that respect, many have argued that the subsequent evolutions of blockchain-based cryptocurrencies in the direction of, of those that are compliant with various global KYC, AML, and other regulations you know, has been a, essentially an abuse of the original purity of the concept. But, you know, to me, it's simply a technology. And, you know, the technology needs to be designed to comply with and to meet with the needs of the use case. And when it comes to 
payments, the needs of the use case are that we do not allow for rampant illegal activity. And mm. certainly it is perfectly possible to design digital currencies that have the resiliency, the security, but also the transparency that's needed. And not necessarily transparency to everybody, but the ability to track where necessary activity, you know, so that central authorities have the ability to understand behavior is, is perfectly possible. I remember when we were first working with ASX and helping them in various interactions with their regulators, you know, the very, very earliest conversations where the concept of managing a post-trade infrastructure on distributed ledger technology was introduced. I remember the sort of vague tone of horror on the part of their regulators, you know, who essentially quite understandably were imagining the characteristics of the Bitcoin blockchain being deployed to the Australian cash equities markets. You know, one of the first questions was, you know, you need to understand that there needs to be an entity whose competence we regulate and who's accountable for all transactions. And if you're letting loose these markets into an, an uncurated application in the wild, that isn't going to work for us. And, you know, fortunately, the response was, don't worry, this is a private permissions use case. You know, every actor will be authenticated by us, the ASX. We will be enabler of the technology. While there may be nodes in more than one place, they will all be known <laughs> and identified. You know, these concerns, you know, had to be worked through in, in great detail. And the idea was to achieve the benefits of being able to straight through process transactions to eliminate the need for reconciliation after the fact, the ability to add on and provide services and to interact directly with the numerous actors in the end-to-end financial trade processing ecosystem, all of those benefits were to be achieved without losing the visibility and the accountability and the auditability that's necessary for you know a financially and systemically significant market infrastructure. Yeah, you can forgive them for being nervous about an emerging technology, especially where the regulators are so intimately involved. Yeah, fortune definitely favours the brave, and I'm looking forward to seeing the results there. Blythe, as we look to wrap up, I want to ask a few questions that touch really upon some of the experiences you've had through your career. I mean, you were a woman cutting your teeth in the most testosterone-fueled of environments in one of the world's largest investment banks. 20, 30 years ago. How was that? And how have you seen financial services change from a diversity perspective? I started my career in London and moved a couple of years later to the United States. And at that time, I would say that there were fewer women, certainly in markets businesses, than there are today. And there were fewer women in the UK than there were in the US. The US seemed at that stage to be somewhat advanced, more advanced. But I would say that in terms of any material progress, in terms of percentages of women in positions of significant influence and responsibility, so seniority and compensation adjusted, there hasn't been in the last decade, this is not to suggest I started my career a decade ago, it was decades ago, but I think certainly in the last decade, the progress that appeared to be being made numerically for the first 10 years was not matched by progress in the last 10 years. And that, I don't, you know, there's more effort, there's more acknowledgement, there's more awareness of the issue today than there was. That That is for, for certain. And there's much more process in place around efforts that firms are making to address, you know, not, not just the numbers, but the environment, the culture, the elimination of micro inequities and inherent biases. 
But the results, you know, really are frustratingly stagnant. And you still see significant drop-offs at every level of progression of seniority in the major financial firms. You know, obviously there are a few exceptions, but overall the statistics still don't look great. And, you know, the number of, you know, percentage of managing directors at many of these big firms that are female, where managing director is the most, you know, senior corporate title. In reality, not even all managing directors are created equal. There are many, you know, much more senior people than that. But even at that level, you know, you're talking much, much less than 20%. You know, in some cases, closer to 10% of people at that title are female. And those figures have been amazingly stubborn. I, th- I think the decade in the aftermath of the global financial crisis was not particularly helpful in this regard. This was a decade that was very, very focused on cost cutting and on retrenchment and on, you know, shoring up. It wasn't about growth and development and expansion and change. And I I, I think historically, if you look at the data, you tend to find that underrepresented groups fare worse in belt tightening eras. And that's not to say, actually, you know, there has been headcount growth in some areas, but they tend to be the lower paid and lower titled areas. Uh, so a lot of ad additions in tech, ops and compliance, for example. And there are women represented there, although not sufficiently, particularly in the tech space. You know, significant lag there, more so than the other areas. So I think that decade wasn't so helpful from an environmental point of view. It'll be interesting to see how the post-COVID environment plays out from that perspective. You know, I, I do think one thing that's a positive is that those women that are in the industry today, I think, are quite active more so than two or three decades ago in terms of knowing and understanding that they have a responsibility as role models. And there's a lot of effort on the part of those women to help those who come behind them both from the point of view of hiring, but also mentoring and sponsorship of other women and being open and discussing the topic. You know, when I first started in business, those very rare women that were very senior and successful in the, in the space did, you know, felt a pressure to essentially not be noticeably female in the workplace. They tended to dress conservatively and, and you know, they succeeded by being just like the men that they competed with. And any notion of acknowledging the sort of femininity in the workplace was perceived as weakness or, or perhaps worse as asking for special dispensation, which those who had had to fight so hard to succeed didn't want any association with any notion that they got there because they were you know, they wanted to, it to be known that they got there because they were good, which is just as true today. Women don't want to know today that they got there because they're women and they don't want that suggestion. And it irritates uh, women a lot when the tone shifts that way. But there is more of an acknowledgement that there are disadvantages. And this is not just for women, but also underrepresented groups. By the way, everything I've said about the representation of women is actually far worse if you look at the representation of, for example, African-Americans in the U.S. Stagnant at best, I would say, those statistics, which is very, very frustrating. I completely agree. And you know, I was speaking, in fact, to Anne Cairns of MasterCard, who's putting a, a huge amount of focus at the moment on making sure that that opportunity gap and equality gap doesn't widen even further post-COVID. But a lot of time and work is going to have to be spent thinking about this and companies really have to take responsibility. Well, actually, we're Motive are going to be releasing a new thought leadership series called The Hurdle that will be talking through some of these issues and, and some of the 
ways in which they can be combated. I think that's going to be great, actually. I think that's going to be very, very helpful and it'll be good to see what the reaction to that is. Awesome. Final question, slightly related to your career and, and journey through it. You and I spent some quality time together at Davos in January, which you're right, does feel like a lifetime ago. Everywhere we went, people knew you. There were high fives and hugs just all around. You must have had some fantastic mentors through your career. Who have some of those been and what kind of um, impact did they have on you? It sounds so old-fashioned to be doing hugging and high-fiving, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, yeah. So it's so 2019. Yeah. Um, I mean, gosh, I got very, very lucky during the course of my career, and I worked serially for some of the most amazing people, most of whom were men. In fact, with one exception, I worked for men my whole career. And the one woman was amazing too. So, you know, I would give a shout out to Peter Hancock, who I didn't work directly for, but was my big boss early on in my career. He became the CFO of JP Morgan pre-Chase merger and went on after that to run his own firm and then uh, became the CEO of AIG in the post-financial crisis era and helped restructure AIG. He not only mentored me, but most of the people I'm about to mention that I also worked for him with. And of all the people that grew a class of CEOs. I think credit needs to go to Peter. I worked for Bill Demchek for many years at JP Morgan, who is now the CEO of PNC, one of the best performing financial institutions in the United States. He too sought out and mentored a number of young people that have gone on to be wildly successful, including Andrew Feldstein, colleague of mine who founded and created Blue Mountain. Another chap I would mention, Bill Winters, who I worked for, you know, from for and with from the late 80s at JP Morgan, who today is the CEO of Standard Chartered, and Steve Black, his partner. And I know I'm going to forget someone. I do want to mention Dina Dublon, who was the CFO of Chase and then JP Morgan Chase, who whilst I was the CFO of the investment bank at JP Morgan, she was the only woman I worked directly for extraordinary woman who also led me in new directions from a philanthropic engagement point of view and, and actually recruited me to join the board of the Global Fund for Women, which is a global women's human rights movement building organization, grant making organization that is one of the things that I get the most psychic energy from in my life. It's a, it's a wonderful organization. So thank you to Dina. So yes, I had a number of incredible bosses over the years who weren't just bosses. Without exception, every one of those people has given me very tough feedback, as well as giving me very, very great opportunities and giving me the opportunity to change and do new and different things. But every one of them has given me tough feedback that I needed to hear and that I learned from, and I wouldn't have been able to succeed but for their input. It's amazing to hear how so many people have shaped your career, but also how one person such as Peter has shaped so many people's careers. I certainly know at Emotive Partners with the incredible network of partners and advisors that that's likely to, to also be the case in many respects. It's spending time with brilliant people is, is such a privilege in, in one's career. Blythe, we, we're coming to the end. Thank you so much for your time, uh, as always. It's such a pleasure to speak to you. We could have gone much deeper on all those topics, so we may have to have a repeat further down the line, but I'm very grateful. Thank you. Absolutely. Anytime. It was a lot of fun, and thanks for setting it up. Thanks, Blythe. Thank you for your time and insights, and thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. 
The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of Motive Partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Motive Partners. Motive Partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by Motive Partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.